Well, I think y'all did that justice. Amen. Amen. And you know, to hear Matt say that's from Scripture, how that, I, I, I feel God was honored this morning to hear his word being sung like that. All those thousands of years and the people in heaven hearing people. That was God's law he was presenting and telling them how they should go out. And, and uh, to hear that has to be in, in, encouraging. Well, I appreciate Mike mentioning uh, Point University. I am a graduate, very grateful for my time and education there and relationships. And he mentioned President Collins, who did lead worship for us. But I remember uh, President Collins being in shorts and a t-shirt at camp when I was growing up, um, leading in a guitar um, when I was like elementary, middle school, something like that. And so uh, uh, President Collins has always been a great encourager of me personally and very grateful to... um, uh, what he's done, been able to do at, at the school, and appreciate y'all's support for the school. It's a great school. Well, we've been doing this uh, series called Vision Reconstruction. If you haven't been here, that's okay. We're going through the writing of Old Testament writing of Nehemiah, who's a, uh, an amazing, who was an amazing leader and visionary, and we're walking through that reading. But before we get into that this morning, uh, a guy named William Barker wrote a book called A Savior for all seasons. And in that book, he tells the story of a bishop from the East Coast named Milton Wright, who was the bishop of a church of the United Brethren in Christ. That's a long church name, isn't it? United Brethren of Christ. And for many years, he would go out as a bishop and visit different churches and different people, and sometimes colleges, religious colleges that were affiliated with them. And in in the Midwest, there was one college in particular that he visited on a regular basis just to see what was going on and be encouraged. And while he was visiting that college, he would always stay at the president's home while he was there. And this particular year, he was staying at the president's house and had a fairly young uh, college president there who was not only the president of the college, but he was also professor of physics and chemistry at the, the college, and they were eating dinner one night, and after they had eaten dinner, they were kind of went to the living room or whatever, and they were just kind of hanging out and talking about life, talking about culture and what was going on with the world, and uh, Bishop Wright declared that the millennium could not be far off because he really believed that about everything about nature had already been discovered, and all the invention, all the, these inventions had already been formed. And the college professor kind of laughed and was saying, surely not. He says, I have to disagree with you on that. There is a lot more discoveries to be made, and there's a lot more inventions to be made out there in the future. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? The bishop actually seemed a little angry that he disagreed with him and challenged him on that. And he says, no, I think there's going to be a lot more. And he goes, give me just one invention that you think is going to happen in the next few years. And the president says, I'm pretty sure in the next 50 years that men will be flying. And the bishop said, nonsense, that will never happen. Only angels are intended to fly. Well, apparently this bishop, Bishop Wright, had sons back at home who had reconstructed a completely different vision than their father And their names were Orville and Wilbur Wright. Remember those guys? They certainly didn't have the same vision that their dad did, did they? And they actually are part of flight and the reason that we are able to fly today because of their insistence and their vision. Now think about that for a minute. A lot of times in our lives we have someone in our life who has put forth a vision for us, and we believe that. That's the only vision we know, and so we believe that vision, and we 
pursue that vision maybe, but somewhere along the line someone presents to us another vision that maybe we've never heard before. It may not even seem possible, but sometimes we're challenged. We are motivated. We're inspired by another vision, and we realize there is something beyond the vision that I have, the vision that my family has, the vision that my church has or my school or whatever it may be, and we see beyond that. One of the things that I appreciate very much about this church and some of the other churches that I've been a part of is that my vision has been changed, has been uh, reconstructed by the opportunity to go on mission trips and see how other, not only how other people live, but to see the faith of other people in other countries through mission trips. So I'm very thankful for that, um, being able to say that that vision that I have when I go to another country, I see everybody doesn't live like I do, everybody doesn't think like I do, and everybody still has the opportunity to know and worship the same God that I do. And that makes me see what a big kingdom that God's kingdom is. Well, we're going to uh, continue our series, Vision Reconstruction, looking at this writing of Nehemiah. Now, if you haven't been here, I'm just going to give a quick overview of it. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes um, in Babylon. And the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And they had completely destroyed Jerusalem. And as we talked about in those ancient days, the enemy would not only destroy your town and your city and your region, but they would cart off a lot of your people all the way back away from your territory, your home, to their territory. And so a lot of Jews had been taken out of Jerusalem and moved some 750 to 1,000 miles away to Babylon. And then the Persians came in in a few years, and they were the world power now. And they had allowed some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem some 70 to 100 years after all this had happened. And they started to semi-rebuild Jerusalem. And they built a new temple because the temple had been completely restored, destroyed. But it was nothing like the great Solomon's temple that was there before this destruction. And people knew this is not what it used to be. And they talked about the good old days all the time. Well, back in the good old days, we had Solomon's temple. We were a nation. And now we're in, we've been in exile and we're trying to re- rebuild that. And so Nehemiah never grew up in Jerusalem, but he had grown up as an exile in Babylon, but he had moved up the ladder. He's in the king's court now, but he has this vision that God has given him that my heart yearns to know what Jerusalem was really like. I've heard my, my great-great-grandparents talk about it, and my great-grandparents talk about it, and my parents and my aunts and uncles and all these Jewish people talked about the good old days in Jerusalem, what it used to be when we were there And it's been burning in my heart my whole life, and I want to do something about it. So he has this vision, and he's he's fasted, and he's prayed, and he's gone to God and says, I have this vision for doing something in Jerusalem. And he had an opportunity to go before King Artaxerxes. If you remember last week, he went into the king's presence, and the presence goes, what's wrong with you today? You have never looked like this before. You're not physically ill. This can only be, if you remember what he said, sadness of heart. He recognized that Nehemiah had something in his heart that was bothering him. So he said, what's going on? And he says, well, why shouldn't I be sad when the land of my ancestors is lays in ruins? And it was this moment of, "Uh uh-oh, how's the king going to respond? He goes, what do you want? 
an amazing, he, uh, God has responded to Nehemiah's prayer. What do you want? He says, give me, you know, give me favor, give me success in the presence of this man today. And God did. And he says, what do you want to do? He says, I want to go back and rebuild the walls. He goes, tell me when you're leaving, when you're getting back. And he goes, okay, this is the time. He says, okay. And he goes, can I have paperwork? Can I have paperwork so when I go through all these regions getting back to Jerusalem, which is some 750 to 1,000 miles? Yeah, you can have all the paperwork so you can get through those regions. And one other thing, I need all this natural resources to rebuild rebuild the walls and the king goes fine you can have that too and he's going wow this is really a godly vision because all this has fallen into place so that's kind of where we are going through the first chapter and into part of the second and so today we're going to look at the second part of chapter two of nehemiah starting in verse 11 there it is thank y'all very much and let's listen to what happens he has arrived in jerusalem he has traveled some 750 to 1,000 miles, and he's got all this entourage with him. He's been able to get through all these places with these letters that the king has gave him, and he's got all, this, all these natural resources that he's going to use, these building materials. And this is what he says. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by the night, by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah, and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants and we'll st- we, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, I want us to go back to the beginning of this and notice how Nehemiah goes about his initial visit to Jerusalem. Now, if it were me, and maybe you too would say, man, if I'm coming into town and I've got this vision and this plan to rebuild the walls, I want to make everybody aware of it. I need to have a parade. You know, hey, we're coming in. We're going to rebuild the walls. But... That isn't how he seems to come in. Obviously, people noticed that he came in. I don't know if he came right into the city that moment, or maybe he, in his entourage, stayed outside the city walls and and camped somewhere, and then he just came in. He says he was riding just one horse, and nobody else had one with him. But he comes in, and people probably notice him and kind of wonder what's going on. He says, I waited three days. Even after he got into the region, he waited three days. It doesn't say that he did anything. Maybe they just set up camp and they just sat around for three days. But he had a plan. He knew what he was going to do. But I know people were thinking, who is this that just came near Jerusalem with this big entourage? Who is it? Why are they here? What are all those things that they have, all those supplies and resources that they have with them? There was probably some fear 
there was probably some angst and unrest among the people going, what's going on? And then they might hear, this is from King Artaxerxes. This guy's his cupbearer. What is he doing here? What are they going to do? Are they going to take away what we've tried to rebuild, even the little bit we've tried to rebuild? Are they going to come in and take it completely to the ground and start over? What are they going to do? So there's a lot of angst going on there. But notice how Nehemiah strategically sets out at night with just a few men. Not during the day so everybody can see and ask what's going on, but he does it at night. Now, they didn't have LED lights, you know, those nice bright lights like the DOT uses. He just had torches, and they're just going at night while everybody's asleep and walking around the city walls and seeing all this destruction. I can imagine it's probably somewhat like walking through as a lot of us have gone to drive through Noonan and go, my goodness, look at the destruction of that tornado. And you can't really believe it until you actually see it, right? When you see it, you go, that is unbelievable. So you're walking through. So that's, that's what Nehemiah is doing. And not during the day, he's not drawing a lot of attention to himself. He simply wants to make an assessment of what's going on here. So where can we start rebuilding? And maybe he was purposely maybe trying to uh, make the people curious or maybe build some suspense so that everybody go, hey, what's going on and, and, and all that. So he's not, he says, I had not told anyone, and listen to what he says, I had not told anyone about what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He's saying this is from God. God put this in my heart. This is not about me. This is about what God is calling me to do. He's given me a calling. And just a few men with a single mount, a horse maybe is probably how he's getting through there. And at some point you probably noticed in that, that passage, he says, I couldn't even get through with my horse. It was so, you know, so much rubble. So he gets off the horse and he's having to walk and make these assessments. Now he said the officials... There were officials, there was some sort of leadership, there was some sort of a government that was going on in this in Jerusalem at the time, but he says, they were not aware of my coming and my going or what I was doing because I hadn't spoken to anybody. And he specifically mentions the Jews, which are his people, priests, nobles, and officials, and he says, or anyone who would be doing the work. Now, when I hear that, Jews, yeah, they could do some work, but priests, nobles, and officials, I don't see those guys doing manual labor, do y'all? Those are the guys who were sitting at a desk and pointing, oh, this is what y'all need to do, coming out with the plans and rolling them out on the desk or something. This is what y'all need to do. Y'all need to do that. This is how you do it. But this is a hint of how Nehemiah has this vision that's going to motivate everybody. Regardless if you're used to doing manual labor, you're going to be a part of this vision of doing things. So you can imagine during those first three days and now this next day or so where he's going at night and looking and assessing the problem, that Jerusalem is buzzing. They're going, what is going on? Who is this guy? And everybody's speculating on, hey, what is, uh, what's going to happen? I notice that we do a lot of speculating in our, in our um, culture right now. I know we just uh, are in, I guess we're still in the process of the NFL draft. And I have been hearing incessantly all the teams and what they were going to draft and who they were going to draft. And a lot of them were wrong, weren't they? You don't always know. But even people are speculating about what Nehemiah is doing here, what's going on here. And we don't know how he finally got all the people together to be able to make some sort of an announcement about who he was and why he was there. But eventually it happened because we read. So Nehemiah talks to the people. He says the obvious about the destruction in their town. He casts this basic vision and this basic solution. Hey, the walls are broken down. The gates are burned. We need to rebuild the walls. And I can imagine there's silence. Really, Captain Obvious? That's all you got? <laughs> really? It's broken down? It's been broken down for 100 years or more. We live in this. What are you talking about? And then it says, 
that Nehemiah shares his story. And this time, it's not just a basic vision. They're like, now, who are you again? You work for the king a thousand miles away, and you're coming in here and telling us that our walls are broken down? We know that. We live it every day. We walk to work and see the broken down walls. We walk back to our house. We see the broken down walls and the broken gates and the burned gates. And it's a reminder that we're in disgrace. All of the people that live around us go, the Jews made their God mad and they have been in exile. And he's let them come back, but they're still in ruins. This is a disgrace to them. But Nehemiah in verse 18 tells them, but wait a minute, I want to tell you my story. And this changes their perspective, I think. He has a godly vision, and the people brought, uh, bought into this godly vision that he presents to them. The sharing of God's gracious hand upon me, and he tells them the story. And I think he draws it out long. And just like we read specifically last week in the first part of chapter 2, he goes, I went to the king, and I went to his presence, and he saw that I was sad. And he's telling them all this, and people are listening to him. And he says, and I said, he said, why... This, you know, why are you sad in my presence today? You've never been sad before. This can only be uh, something that's troubling your heart, sadness of heart. And when I told the king, why shouldn't I be sad? He says, what is it that you want? And they go, and the people are probably going, really, he said that? What is it you want? And you told him that you want to come back here and rebuild the walls? And he goes, yes, and I told him. And he says, okay. You can go. And then I asked him for papers to get here. And that's how I got through all these different regions and other enemies. I showed him the papers to go, ooh, King Artaxerxes, yes, right this way, sir. And they let him come in. So he knows us. And as they're listening to this story, they're going, this guy really is Jewish. This guy really does know his history. He really is one of us. He really wants to do something. And now all of a sudden, something starts to, to go in them. And they say, let's start rebuilding. But why? What was it? That, that caused them to buy into the vision that Nehemiah had given. It wasn't something they didn't already know needed to be done. They knew it needed to be done even more than Nehemiah. Like I said, they walk past it every day. They live in it. As I've been on some mission trips that we go on and we go to help somebody, and you, you don't go in when we go to Guatemala and go, did y'all know your house is a piece of junk? We don't say that. They know that. They've been living in it every day. But we're there by God's grace to say, because God has blessed us, he's blessed us to be a blessing to whom much is given what? Much is expected, right? So we go and we build the house for them. And they know that. But they didn't have the resources and they didn't have the ability to build that house. And that's how God brings together vision. But they had not been motivated in Jerusalem to do anything about it. They didn't have the resources. Maybe they were fearful that their enemies that were around watching, they said, don't let them get back to where they were before. Remember, they used to be the world power. Don't let them get back to that. As soon as they start rebuilding, you got to stop them because they want to be the world power again. So they were living in and with a problem that had just become, okay, this is our life now. We're going to live in a broken down city, and that's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Now, to try to bring that into our culture, into our lives right now, I want to ask y'all a question. I want to ask me a question. Right now in your life, is there a problem in your life that you know about? It's in the forefront of your mind, it's in your heart, it's in your soul, but you've just decided to be okay with that. Yeah, this is the problem. And I know what's going on in my family, I know what's going on in my life, I know what's going on in my job or in my school or on my team or whatever it is. I know what's going on, but that's just the way it is. Y'all remember the movie, um, It's a Wonderful Life? And you know, every time he goes, George Bailey goes up the stairs of his house, that little thing comes loose on the stairs. Y'all remember that? Somebody please nod, thank you, all right? And you know, and he puts it back every time, and he knows he needs to fix that, right? Because I'll do that another time. And we have those things in our house, right? Well, I know that needs to be fixed, but I 
I'll do that later because it can be done. But we just keep passing it. But I'm trying to get personal with us today because there's some things in our life that we know are not right, but we just have given up. Uh, there's nothing I can do. It's just the way it is. And we're okay living in that. And I believe God is saying, I'm not okay with you living like that. That's not what I intended for your life. That's not the vision I have for you. That's not uh, the goal I have for your life. So what is it that you believe is not solvable? What do you believe that can't change in your life or that God can't change in your life? Craig, you don't understand. If you had any idea how hard I've tried to change this, you don't know anything about me and you don't understand. You're right. I don't understand any of that. But you have a God that does. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. But somebody or something in your life has made you believe that it's not solvable. That you just have to live like that. And maybe it's possibly made you lose hope. And you have lost the motivation to even solve it anymore. And let's just kind of sit in that for a minute. Silence is uncomfortable. It's awkward, isn't it? Hurry up, keep talking. I don't have to think about my deal. So Nehemiah came from the Persian king, the Artaxerxes court. He was living a life of luxury, except for those two or three times a day when, here we go, i got to taste the, the, the king's food and his drink and make sure it's not poison. Can you imagine that every day, having to do that, the anxiety? But I thought, why would the people in Jerusalem listen to him? He doesn't understand what we've been through. We've been living in this, and he's been living in the king's palace. What does he know about what it means to live in a broken down and burned down city? And they're probably thinking, who are you? Do you not think we know about this city and it lies in ruins? We're very aware of that. Do you think that we don't know the trouble these broken down walls and gates present to us daily, Nehemiah? We're very aware of that. Of course we are in disgrace. Thanks for the observation. And I don't know if anyone said these things, but I bet they were thinking it. And I bet there was an awkward moment of silence before Nehemiah shared his story about meeting with the king. And when he did, all of a sudden they said, let's start rebuilding. And notice another thing that Nehemiah says. He says, we and us. I think this is what produced a passion in these people. Nehemiah told them about his God, a personal God, who had this gracious hand upon him. And he put it on Nehemiah. This was not about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this was way bigger than him. It was about Israel. It was about the nation of Israel, the people, God's chosen people who had been through a long and painful exile and had come out of it, but they were still in disgrace. If Nehemiah only cared about himself, why would he go to the risk to go before the king and leave his home and go all the way to a place where he knew people were going to go, who are you? What do you know about this? How are you going to fix it? But Nehemiah says, we are in disgrace. We need to do something. I'm one of you. If we really think about it, we are a part of this culture. We are a part of this Jewish uh, heritage that needs to be brought back. The whole world knows. Our enemies know that we disgraced our God by breaking the covenant, and he put us in exile. But he is in this, y'all, I promise. And he's brought me here, and he's allowing us to move out of this, and we need to move out of it. He verbalizes that they are a nation, a people with an amazing identity as God's holy people. You know what holy means? Set apart. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't do anything wrong. It means you have been set apart for a purpose. Israel wasn't better than anybody else in the world, but they were set apart to reflect to the rest of the world, this is our God. We are God's people, and we reflect who our Father is, who our God is. And they had blown that for a while, but God's given them another chance.
in their present situation. Listen carefully what I'm saying. Their present situation in a run-down, burned-down city did not change their identity or their calling. Did you hear that? They were in a burned-down city. Their environment was burned down and broken down, but it did not change their identity or their calling. It was still the same, and God had not given up on them, even if they had given up on themselves. And Nehemiah caused them to look at a picture of the future. Remember what we said vision was? Vision is a picture of the future that produces what? Passion in people. And that's what Nehemiah is presenting to them. And Nehemiah calls them to look at a future that reflects their true identity and their calling. And by telling his personal story of how he got here in that encounter with the king, it's obviously it produces passion in the people. They go, maybe God really does know our situation. Maybe there is a way out of this broken down city and broken down walls and burned down gates. How do they respond? They say, let us Start rebuilding. Just like Nehemiah included them, we, us, he's including them. We, us, we're all one. Someone had presented a picture of the future that produced passion in them. Nehemiah did. God knows our past. God knows our sin and our, our, we broke the covenant, but God has not forgotten us. He still loves us. He knows our situation and he's actively responding to our situation. He wants to give us hope. God wants to give us future right now. God is inviting us to actively be a part of living out our true identity and our true calling. And when Nehemiah tells them all that, they go, yeah, we can do this. Let's start rebuilding. They're ready. And this story is really more relevant in our lives than we really want to admit. Because going back to that question, I ask you, what do you have in your life that you think can't change? God knows that. God knows about that. There are some unhealthy and in some cases some ungodly things going on in my life and in your life that we need to change, but we're just living in it. We're scared to tell somebody. We're afraid of the shame it might bring on us. We're afraid to tell anybody or try to work it out. We're, we've, we've decided it can't be changed, so we just rationalize it and say, that's just the way it is. It'll never change. And that is a lie from Satan. He wants to believe you can never change, and it'll always be like that. We feel like we're living in a run-down, burned-down life that is not the life we envision for ourselves. But I would say to us, just like Nehemiah and God said to those people, your present situation does not change your identity or your calling. You are still the person that God has called and has given an identity to do something. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. That's your identity. That's your calling. And that doesn't change because you're in a bad environment. It makes it harder. I ain't going to argue with that. But it doesn't change your calling. So we need to say just to what those people said, to, to what Nehemiah, to what God said to those people, we need to hear just what they heard in that time. God knows your past. He knows Craig's past. He knows God has not forgotten you. He's not forgotten me. He still loves you. He still loves me. He knows our present situation. He knows my present situation. He is actively responding in your life, even if you don't see it right now. He wants to give you hope, and he wants to give me a future and a hope. And God's inviting you to be actively involved in living out your calling and your true identity. But in order to do that, we've got to have a different vision, don't we? And we need that. We have to reconstruct our vision. And when the people heard about how Nehemiah got there and could see God's obvious hand in this, they go, this is guy's for real. Why would he make this up? This is real. God does hear us. He is doing something. And their vision started to be reconstructed. And they go, yeah, let's start building now. 
And maybe you need to see God's work in your life. And some of you are maybe ignoring that because you think God doesn't hear you, He doesn't see you, He doesn't know you. And that vision must be a godly vision that includes me acknowledging that there is a God that created me and has given me an identity, that has given me a calling, that sees me as His creation. He's my sustainer, He's my Savior. And His vision is never just about me, though. And we live in a culture where it's always about me and we have to realize that's not always true. Otherwise, my vision will revert back to a fleshly vision that's all about me and it's all about my selfish desires. And guess what? I can never fully satisfy all my selfish desires. Nehemiah's vision was not about him. It was a vision for the people to reflect who God was and is. I truly believe if we'll authentically seek God's hand at work, we will see it. But we have to look for it. We have to see that. And seeing it at work, we see that he's inviting us to be a part of the work. He's not going to do it all for us. God didn't miraculously rebuild these walls as we're going to see. They had to do it. And here's the deal. When you truly start looking for God's hand at work and start trying to reconstruct your vision, guess what? People will mock you and ridicule you. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But I want to say something not only to y'all, but I want to say, do you see how this is applicable to what we're going through right now? We're climbing out of this COVID thing, and and we're getting to a good place, I think. But along this year long of being cooped up at home and not doing things and all that, some of us have got into some some bad habits, haven't we? And we're okay with those habits now because, well, that's just the way it is. And I want to talk to y'all that are watching at home right now. I love you, but guess what? God did not want you to stay at home and watch this on TV. He wants you here with us. Isn't that right, y'all? Let them know. Let them know. We want you here. And I know some of you can't be here, but some of you can, and we want you back. That's right. We want you back here in this building with us so we can shake your hand and hug it, and we can take these stupid masks off. I know. I get it. And that had to happen, and I think God was, was teaching us something. I'm still trying to figure all that out, but we don't want you to get in the habit of thinking, oh, I can just do that at home by myself. No, we need community, don't we? God created us to be a part of community, and he wants us back here doing these things and going out. That's why I was so proud. Mike mentioned people went out and were doing things in our community, and that's so encouraging to see that, isn't it? That people have gone through some difficult things, but people are helping them climb out of that. Well, he mentioned these three guys, and I can't pronounce their names right, but I'm just going to call them the irritators, okay? So when I talk about the three irritators, you'll know there's some enemies of Israel and of Nehemiah, and they saw what's starting to take place. They hear about the rumblings of Nehemiah has come all the way back. Artaxerxes has given him permission. He's going to rebuild the walls, and what do they say? What are you doing? What do you think you're going to do? That's not going to work. Ridicule. They're making fun of them, and they say, That won't happen. Are you rebelling against the king? What do you mean rebelling against the king? He sent me. He gave me all this paperwork. Well, maybe it's not real paperwork. You see how we do? Do people do that to you in life? As soon as you start trying to turn your life around, people are going to ridicule you. They're going to mock you. They're going to try to question you. Well, what are you going to? Oh, you'll never change, Craig. Why are you even trying to read that book or read the Bible or go to church or get in a small group or or get involved? You're not going to change. People are going to do that to you. And guess what? That's a lie of Satan. If you don't want to change your life, don't change your life, but I'm going to be a part of change. My vision needs to be reconstructed, and I'm going to do that. And you need to be around people who will encourage you to do that. And the God of heaven, listen to what he says, I answered them. He answers these irritators by saying, not me, not me and my vision, but he says, the God of heaven will give us success. 
It's not because of me, but the God that we serve will give us success in this. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is our identity. These walls, this city, this is part of who we are. And God has sent me to help these people re-envision what it is to be God's people. And we're going to do it with God's power. And you have no claim to that. Man, he answers them. Very honestly, doesn't he? He's not afraid of this. So maybe somebody here today needs to take those first steps in reconstructing your vision. Stop believing that God can't work through. Oh, you don't know what I know. No, God does. And God invites you to reconstruct your vision. He wants to reconstruct your vision in your life. So this morning, we're going to offer that opportunity. If you're here today and you want to take those first steps, it's first acknowledging that you need that help in reconstruction in your vision in your life. And Jesus died so that you could do that. That's why he died. If we could do it on our own, Jesus didn't need to die, did he? But we needed his help. We needed something to take away our sin. And Jesus had to die to take away that sin. And he's done that. And he invites us to reconstruct our vision and our